I want to draw your attention now to uh, one particular verse of Psalm 86, and this is where we're going to spend uh, the most of the rest of the evening. Uh, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I think really this verse is the, the climax of the psalm itself. I think it's this verse, this prayer in verse 11, which carries the psalm through to the end. And all that follows this, this verse is really a, a, a readdressing of that same request. Father, teach me, show me, make me so committed to you. Uh, I would also say that in this verse, you've got the... Uh, the, the two halves, but basically the second half of verse 11 is a, is a restatement of the first half with a bit more intensity. So he first says, teach me your way. And then the second half of the verse is saying, no, don't just, don't just teach me. I don't just want the head knowledge. I don't just want an understanding. I want a heart which is totally and utterly committed to you, that is committed to nothing else. I want this undivided heart. Teach me your way. Give me an undivided heart that I might walk in your truth, that I might fear your name. And we'll think a little bit about what those uh, things mean later on. But teach me so that I will live in a right way. And, and what happens then to that prayer of God's mercy? What happens to the fact that in verse 1 he was poor and needy and he needed God's salvation? Well, towards the end of the psalm, uh, verse 14, he says, Well, here are these uh, arrogant, ruthless men attacking me. They're like, but, verse 15, you are compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love and faithfulness. Compare and contrast the attitude of the ruthless men with the goodness and the graciousness of God. And having seen that contrast, David prays, verse 16, turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant. What I think he's praying is, grant your character. Your goodness is your strength. Your compassion is your strength. Your patience, your slowness to anger is your strength. Grant that same strength to me, your servant. Give me a sign of your goodness. Or reveal your goodness to me, or even in me. And so that my enemies, what will happen to them? They won't be smitten, burnt up. They won't be uh, demolished and driven away. They will see your care and compassion for me. And they will be ashamed of their own behavior. And they will turn to you. You, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And so the, the, the dire need that the psalm started with in, in verse 1, I'm poor and needy, I need your salvation, by verse 11 after considering the character of God, has become, Lord, teach me. Teach me to love you. Teach me to follow you. Give me a heart that is utterly devoted to you. And so my aim this evening is really to commend the verse, uh, the prayer of verse 11 to you. There are many useful prayers, worthwhile prayers that we are given in Scripture. But my aim this evening is just to commend verse 11 of Psalm 86 to you. Perhaps this could be a prayer that you pray several times this week, meditating on this psalm, thinking about what it would mean for you to have an undivided heart that sticks to your God, your Saviour. That's my aim. 
And to do that, I've got three things that I want to tell you uh, will happen if you begin praying this prayer in earnest. An undivided heart is full of joy, not guilt. That's the first thing. A divided heart is trusting a powerless God. And the third thing, this prayer leads us on the path to glory. That's what we're going to do this evening. I want to commend the prayer of verse 11 to you uh, with these three reasons. First, an undivided heart is full of joy, not guilt. If we had come to Psalm 86 verse 11 without any context uh, and just presented this prayer, Lord, give me an undivided heart. I wonder how your brain would have interpreted that prayer. And I wonder how you would have decided whether it was a worthwhile prayer to be praying or not. We've, uh, that song that was playing before the service, if you were here, uh, is a, a song that uses these exact words of scripture and puts it to music. And we've had that playing in our house for several years now. And when I think of that song, I often think that is, that is a real worthwhile thing to be praying for. An undivided heart. If only my heart were so totally committed to God, wouldn't my walk with Christ be so much more fruitful and vibrant if that were the case? And sometimes as I think in those ways, the, the, the verse leads me only to recognize my own sinfulness, my weakness. I think about my need to, to be more um, diligent in reading God's word and studying it properly. Uh, I think about my need to be more persistent in prayer. I think about my need to uh, be more deliberate in fighting sin, especially those sins that so often beset me. I think about how I ought to be more devoted in service. I think about how I ought to counteract doubts that rise up so often within me. And verse 11 becomes then kind of a, um, a recognition of the competing desires that I see in my own heart. Yeah, I, I, I need to pray this prayer because I, I have got a divided heart. I'm, I'm, I'm chasing after so many other things so often. Things uh, prompt me to, 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 to waste time on things that don't matter. Things of non-eternal value. And verse 11 has in the past become a bit of a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of recognizing my own guilt and saying, I wish I wasn't like this. I wish I was someone different. I wish I was utterly devoted. I wish I was, like David himself was, a man after God's own heart, committed to seeking God. Now, there is a place for such prayers in Scripture. And so, if you turn to Psalm 51, for example, again a psalm of David, a psalm of confession, where David is recognizing, yes, I've sinned. I've done wrong, I've fallen short, and I've chased after someone or something other than my God. And I confess that sin, and I'm seeking forgiveness. And part of Psalm 51 is a prayer that says, Create in me a pure heart. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. You see the similarity between that prayer and verse 11 here. But Psalm 86 is not a prayer of confession. Psalm 86 is a prayer of intercession. And actually, more often, Psalm 86 can be seen as a a psalm of praise. David, in Psalm 86, isn't confessing his guilt. He isn't racked with, I've failed yet again. I I need this undivided heart. In Psalm 86, David is recognizing how good is God. How wonderful, how, how able, how generous, how loving, how forgiving is he. 
And he's not confessing his sin to God. He's saying, God is the greatest. And I want to be utterly committed to him. And so, if you take verse 11 as your prayer, it doesn't necessitate you to walk through these feelings of guilt. Uh, It's not only to be used as a demonstration of repentance. I expect in practice you often will use it in prayer of repentance. But it's not, it doesn't necessitate this uh, act of repentance. It doesn't mean that you have to be uh, groveling to God in your guilt every time you pray this prayer. It can simply be a recognition of God's great goodness and his glory. It can simply be a recognition that there is no other place on this earth where I can find true joy and satisfaction apart from in him. And so, God, give me an undivided heart. That's what I want because there is, there is nothing else worth having on this earth. You know, praying verse 11 without the context of Psalm 86 might feel a bit like going into McDonald's and asking for a salad. You know, I, I'm in the wrong place for asking for a salad. It, you go in and you think, oh, there's all these burgers, there's the chips, there's the chicken nuggets, there's everything that you might enjoy. Or if, you, if you're really not into McDonald's, change the illustration. Let's go into a bakery, okay? And there's the donuts, and there's the pan au chocolates, and there's the croissants, and you ask for a fruit salad. And why do you do it? Because you know that, oh, as good as those things look, I better not. I'm watching my figure. I better, I better be good this time. So let's have the salad in McDonald's. Or let's have the fruit salad in the, in the bakery. And you do it because you know you ought to. But even as you're eating it, you're looking at the board with all the other options on. And you're thinking, ah, if only. Maybe next time. They look just as appealing, if not more so. But that's not what's going on in Psalm 86. Uh, David is not saying, look, I've chased after so many other things and uh, I know they're not really good for me. I better, I better turn back to God. I better ask for this undivided heart. I better ask that he would uh, zap me with some, uh, some power so that I never chase after those things again. That's not what's going on. David is expressing his utter trust and his utter love of God. And verse after verse, you get these descriptions of God's loving, gracious kindness, patience towards him. And so a better illustration, rather than going into McDonald's and asking for a salad, a better illustration would be going into a a Michelin star restaurant and just saying, I'll have the chef special. You go in, you're not asking for, for a certain thing. You're trusting the chef. I know you will make me something good. I'm here because of him. And so I'm not going to leave wishing I'd had something different because I trust the, the chef, if you like. And in a similar way, David's saying, I trust that you alone, God, are the only source of joy and gladness. And I want to be committed to you. The more of God I have, the more of God I will want. And notice that verse 11 is a prayer. It's not a commitment. It's not David himself saying, I am going to have an undivided heart that is only focused on you. It's a prayer for God to give him an undivided heart. And that's important to recognize as well. Because if you approach verse 11 as a commitment that you make to God... Well, you will never find joy in this prayer. Because when you start making your own commitments to God about, I will have this undivided heart, you're then doomed to failure. 
Because our hearts, we know, are so easily and so often led astray. From the very first two people, Adam and Eve, their hearts were led astray to seek and, and chase after someone or something other than God. And they didn't even have the, the patterns of sin in their life beforehand. Yet Satan found it so easy to lead them into rebellion. And now we who have grown up with sin as patterns and habits, who have it so ingrained into our lives that so often we find it difficult to even spot sin, we can never begin to, to think that we're able to commit to, oh yes, I will have this one undivided heart that never deviates from seeking God. And we've got to pray that God would give us this. We've got to pray that God would teach us. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. But it means you can't do it without the Spirit's help. You can't change your own heart. You need Him to be renewing you from the inside. So we ask God to teach us. We ask God to teach us, verse 11, to walk in His truth. Here's the beauty of the the poetry of the Psalms. Uh, David could have just written... Teach me, Lord, to be obedient. And it would have meant basically the same thing. Teach me to be obedient. Teach me to keep your law, he could have put. But he's a poet. He's writing a song. And so he writes something much more beautiful. He says, teach me to walk in your truth. Isn't walking in truth a much more attractive proposition than always being obedient? It's exactly the same thing. But it sounds much fresher, much more beautiful, much more attractive. To walk in truth. It means that you leave behind the insecurity of lies and deception. Always trying to cover your back. It means you leave behind the emptiness of the false gods who cannot deliver the things that they promise. It means you leave behind the anxiety of seeking to prove your own worth, self-righteousness. You leave behind those deceptions and you walk in truth. You enjoy the freedom of a clear conscience. You enjoy the joy of satisfaction, enjoying the good thing that that God provides for us. You know the peace of sins forgiven. We walk in his truth and we fear his name. It's not a dissimilar idea. It's expressing a real commitment to God. Fear is a little bit of a dirty word in today's culture. You're not supposed to fear anyone or anything. And if someone does cause you fear, well, they've they've harassed you or even assaulted you, depending on what sort of language you hear people using. But when the Bible talks about fearing God or fearing the name of God, it's not got any negative overtones to it at all, not for the believer. It's expressing a fullness of joy, a, 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 a kind of joy, a kind of happiness, a kind of reverence, a kind of love that engages every aspect of your emotions. Uh, Mike Reeves gives this uh, really great quote about what the fear of the Lord is. He says the right fear of God is not the, the minor key, gloomy flip side of real joy in God. No, there is no tension between fear of God and joy in God. Rather, this trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the believer's happiness in God. We're so intensely happy, we are shivering, we are quaking 
with the joy of the moment. We are made to rejoice and tremble before God, he says, to love him with an intensity that is fitting for him. And what more befits his infinite magnificence than an enjoyment of him that is more than our frail selves can bear, which overwhelms us and causes us to tremble. When we pray for God to teach us, when we pray for an undivided heart, we pray that God will give us fullness of joy in knowing him, not in the things that we chase on this earth. The second reason I commend this prayer to you is because a divided heart is trusting a powerless God. A divided heart is trusting a powerless God. In verse 7, you read, In the day of my trouble, I will call to you. It might disappoint some of you as you meditate on that verse to realize that actually, yes, those days when I have called upon God is only because I've been in trouble. And unless I reach that day of trouble, I very rarely call to God. And perhaps verse 7 is convicting you of your own failings in this area. You've used God as as a get-out-of-jail-free card, as it were. So many of us only call upon God in the day of trouble. You know, when the water of the sea, for example, is flat and still like a mill pond, on those days, a paper boat floats just as well as a battleship. They will sit there happily. If there's no wind, if there's no waves, if there's no stormy, choppy waters, a paper boat will float just as happily as a battleship. And some Christians who have been blessed with lives that are like those days where the sea is like a mill pond, they look around at other believers and they wonder, why are these other Christians so intent on getting over to the battleship? Don't they know how much fun it is to play with these paper boats? Look how colourful they are. Look how pretty they are. Look how many different ones I can have around me at once. Some people, some Christians, are content in trusting paper boats, flimsy little gods who pretend to be pretty and pretend to give enjoyment. And while ever life is going easy, while ever life is like those days when the sea is like a mill pond, then it doesn't seem to be a problem because there's no trouble that the God needs to lift you out of. But one day, as we were thinking this morning, the storms will come. And on that day, you will very quickly see that the place to be is not in the paper boat, no matter how pretty they are and no matter how many you've got around you. The place to be is on the battleship, the only place of security. It's a similar contrast that David is making in verse Uh, 8 to 10. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. That is why, in verse 7, he said, in the day of my trouble, I will call to you, because you will answer me. In fact, only you can answer me. Anyone else who I call to is not even able to answer, does not have any power to act or change the situation that I'm in. And so I will call to you in the day of my trouble. 
Once you've been through a moment of trouble, you immediately begin to learn firsthand the powerlessness of those false gods which we so often trust in. And you begin to see firsthand the greatness of God, our Father. And you wonder why you ever toyed with those false gods in the first place. And so David prays, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, that I will praise you. Give me a heart that praises the one true God. Give me a heart that seeks value in the one true God. Give me a heart that depends upon the one true God. Give me a heart that prioritizes and seeks to serve the one true God. You and you alone. Because when I do all those things, when I seek value, when I, when I chase after the empty gods, then what it leads me to is, well, first it sets me up on a shaky foundation. It gets me ready for a fall. And I might not feel that shakiness when the days are easy and the water is calm. But the shakiness is revealed as soon as trouble comes. That's the first problem. To, to trust in those false gods, you, you set yourself up on a shaky foundation. But the other problem is, when you trust in those false gods, it leads us into all sorts of other problems. It actively leads us into other problems. It leads us into discontent. Because we're always chasing after the things that the false gods are promising to us. But we never ever reach them. And so we're discontent. I must have a little bit more money. If only my wage was a little bit higher, it'd be easier to pay the bills. If only my friendships were a little bit better. If only my family was a little bit more sorted out. If only I was a little bit younger than I am today. If only my health was a little bit better. We're never satisfied if we're chasing after the false gods. It leads us into self-righteousness, chasing a false god. Because you've got to prove yourselves worthy so that the God that you're seeking to honour will hear you and respond to you. But with the one true God, you know, you don't have to prove yourself to him. He is good and forgiving. He is slow to anger and he is compassionate. It makes you weary chasing false gods. Because day after day you pour effort into serving them for nothing in return. And it breaks the spirit. And eventually it makes you ashamed. Because it leads you into sin. It leads you into things you regret. When we ask God to teach us his way, we are like the wise man building his house on a rock. God alone is the stable foundation. Thirdly, this prayer leads us on the path to glory. I wonder, as we read through Psalm 86, where did you see Christ in this psalm? Where did you see Jesus come up? In my readings, there are a few obvious points where I thought, ah, that's him. This is where I find him. I wonder if you spotted the same places. One of those places was verse 16. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. And my little head got worrying about the, uh, Mary being the servant of the Lord and uh, obviously Mary's son being Jesus Christ and so on. But I was clutching at straws there. That The words used are uh, just any, any word for servant, really. And actually, I can't find Mary ever being referred to as such a maidservant in the New Testament. It's not verse 16 where we see Christ. Uh, the other place that I thought maybe is going to be found is verse 13. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. Well, surely. This is about Christ. Wasn't he saved by the power of God from the depths of the grave, brought out into resurrection? Well, I don't think this is where Christ is coming out in this psalm. I think, of course, there is a 
type of Christ every time in the Old Testament we see God saving his people. And especially every time we see God acting to reverse the effects of sin and death in the world. So there is at least a link to Christ here. But I don't think it's directly speaking of Christ. And I don't think it's a, a prayer that Christ is directly supposed to be presented as praying because of the tenses involved here. So David is praying this psalm. And as he's praying, he's looking back and saying, right now, the ruthless men are attacking me. You've already delivered my life from the depths of the grave. And so that chronology doesn't fit with the, the, the life of Christ. Where do we see Christ then? I think you see him most clearly in the pattern of thought that you get from verse 11 right through to the end. As I was describing earlier, verse 11, David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Why is he praying this prayer at this point in the psalm? Why is he praying this prayer in the psalm at all? His, his psalm, after all, is, after all, verse 1, a prayer for God to save him, to rescue him. Verse 14, the arrogant men are attacking me. Now, remember, this is a psalm of David. I wonder what episode of his life this might be referring to. Well, there's nothing specific that it could point us to. But in almost every area of David's life, he in some way foreshadows Jesus. David goes on in his prayer. The ruthless are attacking me. Verse 15. But you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious. I am attacked, but you are compassionate and gracious. I am being attacked. These men have no regard for you. But God, you are slow to anger. And you are abounding in love and faithfulness. And so verse 16, David prays, grant me your strength. Save the son of your maidservant. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Verse 17, give me a sign of your goodness. As I said earlier, I think David is praying not for God to wipe his enemies off the face of the earth. David is praying that God would strengthen him and give him the same grace and slowness to anger and compassion towards even his enemies. You see an example of that, multiple examples of that in David's life. One example I could think of was when David is in the same cave as Saul. Saul is seeking his life. And Saul comes in uh, to the cave just to rest, really. And David has opportunity there and then. He could drive the spear through Saul's back and have the whole empty done with. He could take the throne. He could, he could be the king of Israel and, and escape the ruthless man that was attacking him. And yet what does David do? He just cuts off a corner of the garment. And even that he considers to be a great offense against the one who actually is on the throne of Israel, Saul. And so he confesses his sin to Saul and he says, I'm sorry. David is granted the, the graciousness, the compassion, the slowness to anger that God himself has character, uh, is characterized by. And what does Saul do? He breaks down in tears and he says, I am not worthy to be king of this nation. David, you alone are worthy to be king of this nation. The, the goodness that the strength that God gives David for that moment leads Saul to be ashamed when he sees it. Now, you can see it in David's life. You can see it most clearly in the life of Jesus. The one who, as he was 
murdered, put on trial, crucified, beaten by soldiers. Rather than using his power, using his strength, using his influence to get out of that situation, he endured it. And even as he has been murdered, he prays, Father, forgive them. Is there anyone else who has a character like this character of God? Jesus Christ is exemplified for us here in this psalm. He is the one who received the strength of God in order to represent the character of God to his enemies. And what was the result? Well, his enemies see the goodness of Christ. The centurion sees the way that Christ dies and says, surely this man was a son of God. His enemies see the way Christ dies and then the way he's raised back to life. And they say, we killed him. At Pentecost, thousands of Jews say, we killed him. We killed the Lord's anointed. We killed the God man. We killed Jesus. And they're cut to the heart and they repent and they trust in him. I think in this part of the psalm is really where we most clearly see uh, the pattern of Jesus Christ. And when we pray then, verse 11 to 13, when we pray verse 11 especially, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. We pray that God would give us that same strength of character. We're praying that God would make us just like Christ. We're praying that God would make us willing to walk in the same footsteps of life that Christ himself walked. Being willing to suffer in order that he may, having suffered, enjoy the glory that God would give. And you get hints of that in verse 11 to 13. Teach me your way. Give me an undivided heart. I will walk in your truth. Even if that walking in your truth leads me to all sorts of suffering and difficulty. Verse 12, I will praise you. I will glorify your name forever. I know there is a glory waiting for me, and therefore it makes this prayer worth praying. Great is your love towards me, for you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. Believers today can say that. We have been rescued from the depths of the the grave. We know the grave will not hold us, but we will one day share the joy, the glory that Jesus Christ himself has received. We will be co-heirs with him. Sharing is inheritance. To pray for an undivided heart is to walk in the footsteps of Christ on the path to great glory. I hope I've commended the prayer of verse 11 to you. And perhaps that might help you use this prayer in your own personal devotions this week.